Sunday before Christmas. Uh, there's excitement in homes, Lord. There's a joy that Christmas brings of just family and fun and all the wonderful things that come with that. But nothing gets us excited as we think about the child that was born. Our God and Savior is in the manger. Darkness has covered the world. Sin has had its way. And now there's one who can come and beat it. And so, Lord, that excites us more than anything. And we praise you that we can gather together and worship you. We know many of our church will probably be traveling. Others will be here to come and visit with us, Lord. And we pray wherever this church family is that they would gather and worship you, Lord, and have a wonderful remembrance of that first Christmas morning. Lord, we think of those who cannot be with us because of health issues. Lord, we ask that you bless them and care for them. We thank you for Pastor Gary who leads a team today to go visit our shut-ins today. And that they would be encouraged, Lord. And we ask that you would bless them and bless that visit today as well, Lord. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries. They're all celebrating Christmas around the world too in different cultures and languages. But the same Lord Jesus, the same Messiah, he draws the nations to himself. And we praise you that our missionaries are proclaiming that truth around the world. Give them strength, give them favor, protect them, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you that we can turn to it and preach it, not what we think or what we believe or our own thoughts that would change over time. We get to preach your unchanging word. And so, Lord, may it minister to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The beginning of the week, I began to think about, all right, what am I going to preach on next? Uh, normally, I'm preaching through a book, uh, which is great. I love doing that. Uh, but in these kind of situations, we, we preach different passages on Christmas and uh, in, the, in the first Advent. But, so I turned to my wife and I gave her some options. And I said, honey, what would you, what would you like? And I said several options. And one of them was the Magnificent here of Mary. And she said, I want you to preach that. <laughs> so I am preaching this because my wife asked me to. Um, and, I, and I think that's great. I, 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 the more I studied this, uh, I haven't preached it in a long time the more I found myself rejoicing. As you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56 will be our text. We come to what is called Mary's song or Mary's prayer. It's been affectionately called the Magnificent. Um, and that comes from the Latin word exalt. But the Greek word there means to magnify as well. And so that's where this term comes from. The title really represents the outpouring of praise that Mary has. It just flows from her. And she's using tremendous Old Testament language, right? She's a student of the scriptures and it's coming out of her. And you can hear these things. It is said that both younger and older Hebrew women would often memorize and meditate on passages that reflected the hearts of many of the matriarchs in the Old Testament. There is some resemblance when you look at Mary's song to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. When you think about Hannah and you think about Mary, they had amazing experiences. The hand of God was on both of them in unique ways. Hannah is given the blessing of ending a season of, of barrenness. And we, we get from her Samuel who actually speaks greatly about the coming of the Messiah. Mary experiences this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. These women have unique encounters with God. And both of them 
flow with prayer and song from them. Some theologians believe that Mary was using Hannah's prayer as she wrote this. And and that might be possible. But when you study Hannah's prayer, you begin to realize that there's more in Hannah's prayer of triumph over her enemies as she gives great praise and honor to God. Let me read just a few lines of Hannah's prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly, and listen to this, against my enemies. Remember, she had so many who mocked her and, and another wife in the family, right, of Elkanah's. And it was difficult what she was going through. As a barren woman, she was mocked that she did not have the favor of God. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation, there is one, no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you. Great truths about God as she worships. Nor is there another rock like our God. Then he, she says this, boast mo, no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. And so you see a, a difference in Hannah's prayer. She is challenging uh, uh, those who opposed her as she gives great, uh, great praise to God. Mary's prayer comes in a little more humble contemplation type of song or prayer. She knows that God has brought mercy to her, has shown compassion to her, has done great things, and she wants to contemplate those. And you hear that coming out if she gives, us, gives God praise and worship. As we think about Mary and, and probably how this came about just humanly, we, we realize that Mary probably traveled a great distance. The Bible says that Gabriel appeared to her in Galilee, the Bible says in verse 26. And then the Bible says that she travels to the hill countries. And we know this in verse verse 39 because that's where Elizabeth is. She's in the hill country of Judea. And so it's roughly three to four day walk depending where that town is. It's hard to pinpoint that. We don't know exactly where she is. But she traveled a long ways. And doubtlessly during this time, Mary contemplated the story of of many of these women. I, I thought about this. She, she probably thought deeply about Hannah. And it might have encouraged her. But that maybe wasn't only one. She may have thought about Ruth. But Ruth's such a beautiful testimony of a woman who, who abandons her, her own gods, her own nation, to go and be with Naomi and that her God would be her, uh, her God and uh, Naomi's God would be her God and her people would be her people. And what a tremendous teaching of Ruth, maybe she thought about Sarah and the trials that Sarah went through and meditated on how Sarah, in very difficult circumstance, placed her hope in God, 1 Peter chapter 3. I thought maybe she thought about Rahab. Think about the scrutiny Rahab went through as she's rescued out of Jericho and comes into the nation of Israel, ends up in the line of Christ, but she's, she's a harlot. She's a, her... her Her profession was prostitution. Maybe she thought about them and found encouragement that women, godly women, went before her. Well, the Bible's clear that Mary found favor with God. And God showed that by putting his son, the fruit of her womb, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he he would be the blessing to the nations, right? And so here we have this young woman 
who now believes that all things is possible, and, and, and she's probably wrestling with that, but she believes because that's what the angel said, all things are possible. How can this be? All things are possible, verse 37. So I think Mary's this great example as we look at her of a, of a believer, one who submits to God's will through faith and humility. But we also see in her prayer, in her song here, a young woman who models biblical worship. That's astounding when you study this. She's a model of biblical worship. As we look at this narrative, it tells us that after receiving the news of the Holy Spirit's miraculous conception in her, she makes a journey. And she leaves to be with this older relative, Elizabeth. We see that in verses 39 through 45. Doubtlessly, this visit helped Mary. She confirmed those truths as she meets, uh, and, and in my minds, two pregnant women belly to belly as they greet one another. Certainly this strengthened her. And as a young woman, this visit must have encouraged her and, and, and chased away maybe some of those doubts as she was wrestling with what was going to happen to her through this pregnancy. The narrative is silent on the response of the parents. We see nothing of them in the scripture or other relatives. But the amount of time that she spends with Elizabeth is a little bit telling, isn't it? Here's a young girl, first child, miraculous conception. She's not with her family, her immediate family. She's with a cousin, Elizabeth. It's a strong possibility that the family had rejected her and most likely, Joseph still fulfilled his dowry. He was a faithful man. The Bible says he was righteous. And he gave that to the family. And then as we study, as we'll see, as the census has to be taken and families go to Bethlehem, that whole family of their line would have been there. They find themselves in a manger scene. But as we look at Mary in our passage today, we find a humble nobody who's a worshiper. She's carrying a great load. I mean, think about this. She's carrying the Son of God. She's carrying her own Savior. She's doubtlessly under scrutiny from family. And so she would have loved the words of Jesus that came later. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from it. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I thought about that passage, and though it was not written yet, or Jesus had not said that yet, that's, that's what she would have felt. What a burden she was carrying in a sense of, of, of how people looked at her and the difficulties of her arrangement. But everything changed for, for Mary. She now sees her God, but not only as her God of the Hebrews, not only the God of Israel, she sees God as her Savior now. And that's when everything changes for us as well. And so I want to look at four thoughts centered around that idea that Mary now sees God as a Savior, and particularly the Son of God as a Savior. Four thoughts this morning. Number one, the joy of those who see Jesus as their God and Savior. There is a joy, isn't there? I think there's a stark difference between Elizabeth's greeting of Mary and these words of excitement that she has um, as she, she is uh, explaining to 
to Mary what has happened. She is with child as well. But Mary, again, has this worshipful, contemplative prayer to her as she comes and, and lays this out by the inspiration of the Spirit. John the Baptist, he, he enjoys this as well. As you see in verse 42, and she cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. But right before that, this baby leaps as the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth. And, and Elizabeth speaks even of blessing and prophecy. She speaks of the fruit of the womb that would come. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And then she says this great prophetic statement. And blessed is she who believes that there will be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And so there's greeting is full of prophecy. It's full of joy. Um, Elizabeth is no longer barren. Um, she is going to birth the forerunner to Christ who is going to be the one who comes, who says there's one greater than me. I'm not even worthy to unlast the strap of his sandal. Such beautiful uh, harmony in these passages as, as so much of the word of God is being fulfilled. But Mary's song, again, has a calm, restrained tone to it. Elizabeth's excited. Mary comes in with a very contemplative tone to her. Notice her prayer begins with praise and exultation. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. She starts with an exaltation, and I think this is a mark of believers. We praise him, not just from an emotional praise. Certainly emotion is part of our praise. We, we don't want to say we worship emotionalists. But here notice that she says, my soul exalts the Lord. Something greater, there's, there's something deeper, there's something within her soul, her spirit, that is driving worship. It's coming from within her. The soul, the spirit, represents that inner heart of Mary. That's where that eternal change takes place in a person when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she says, my soul is exalting my God and Savior. Notice the word exalt. It's a word in its, in its syntactical structure that means there's a continual action. There's, it denotes an attitude of, of continually magnifying the Lord. I think when you believe that you're in the will of God, no matter what your circumstances are, hers were difficult. But you believe you're in the will of God in those even difficult circumstances, there is a continual desire to, uh, desire to exalt God as Savior. And this is what we see. Uh, again, we know that she had strong influences from the Old Testament. The Bible teaches us these great words that came from King David. Uh, she would have known Psalms 34 too. And it sounds a bit like this. My soul will make boast in the Lord. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord. The humble will hear and rejoice. She calls herself a bond slave. She's rejoicing as a bond slave. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name. Psalms 99.5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. That's, that's the mark of humility mixed with worship. Holy is our God. Isaiah 25, 1, O Lord, you are God, I exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. Now listen to this. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. See, I think she knew her Old Testament. 
And I think this is what's driving these terms, my soul exalts the Lord. In verse 47, Mary proclaims her spirit, that inner person, the place where God changes the soul. She says she's rejoicing. So in verse 46, there's an ongoing rejoicing. But verse 47, there's, there's a uniqueness to this verb. It's a, there's a beginning of something happening there, a unique rejoicing that's happening. And so she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And I think she's referring back to this point where this angel, Gabriel, comes and says, oh, oh Mary, you found favor with God. The Lord is with you. I think there's a unique moment where she realizes what God has come to her in a unique way. And so just the verbs alone, there's this first verb, my soul exalts the Lord. There's continual, it's on and on and on. But, but here where it says my spirit rejoices, there's a beginning. The verb chose there is, is unique. It's a beginning. There's something unique that happened. And even though time is hard, maybe things back home are not going well because of the news. But she's rejoicing from that. I think every believer experiences this kind of rejoicing at the point of salvation. A point when our soul is changed. There's a time when your soul is changed. You move from death to life. You, you, you come from blind to seeing. God shines his light into the darkness of our soul, doesn't it? There's a point where regeneration wipes out our sins and we look to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we realize he's adopted us into his, his forever family. There is great rejoicing in that. I love that thinking. And I think we humbly embrace the favor of God at that point. Do you realize that? God favored you when he saved you. This is unique to Mary, some of these terms that we see. Greetings favor one, verse 28, the Lord is with you. And yet that's what he does with us, isn't he? God in all his righteousness could have left us in our sin. He could have let us just go to what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But he favors us, doesn't he? And I know that term, that term's difficult in English. But it has the idea that God uniquely presses his love, his care, his mercy on a believer. And it goes all the way to your soul. It's not some outward form of worship. It's an inward, and this is what you see out of Mary, expressing her joy because God has favored her. So I think this type of rejoicing keeps you going even in some of the most difficult challenges in your life. I, I love studying this because it just makes me full of joy. Lord, I remember when you saved me. I'll never forget that day. The day where you took me and made me your child. But notice that there's something really marvelous behind this rejoicing. Notice she says of God that he, he is her God and Savior. We must remember that she was told that her son would be the savior of his people. And she's one of the people. <laughs> He's, she's going to bear a son who can save his people from their sins. And, and what is most outs <laughs> outstanding here is you begin to think that the God and savior is in her womb whom she needs herself. And so she cries out, he is 
my God, my Savior. I think that's something we must think about. There, I think there are a lot of people who think they have a God, but do they have a Savior? People pray to God in all kinds of ways and forms and difficult circumstances, but do they have a Savior? Most of the world still confesses that there is a God. A very small percentage still remain as atheists. Uh, it's, it's not a large, large group. It's growing um, in some statistics. But most people believe in God, don't they? And you know it because he uses his name in vain all the time. <laughs> it's innate to them, right? In a sinful way. But do they recognize him as a savior? That's the difference. Do you see God as both your God and your savior? Do you see Jesus as both your God, the one who knows all things, controls all things, sustains all things, creates all things? Do you see him as that? But do you see him as one who can rescue you from your sin? This is a great combination that is unique to those who believe in Jesus as their savior. Look at verse 48. Mary goes on, for he has regarded Regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time forward, all generations will count me blessed. I don't think there's any pride of Mary in this statement. If anything, it reflects her humility. There is no personal boasting in what God has done for her here. She's not grabbing credit here. I think all Christians come to this point where we recognize a worthlessness... See, it's why she uses such terms, bond slave. She, the, the emphasis on the verse is not on the bond slave. It is on the one who has regarded her. That's where the emphasis is put. And we realize that we're dead and blind and lost and bound to perish. We see the graciousness of God. And that's what happens with Mary here. She sees that God is gracious and she's, he sent his son as a savior. He regarded her soul, her lowly, sinful soul that needed to be saved. And she knew this was not according to her righteousness. Divine thought here, process that Mary must have had, comes to the conclusion that her life was nothing but now a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the child that she is going to bear, she says, I'm going to be in lifetime service to him. I'm going to be a bond slave, a bond servant. In other words, she says, for the rest of my existence, I will submit my will, my goals, my ambitions. I will surrender them to my God and Savior. What a beautiful term. Notice this last phrase. It says, behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Well, I think Mary knew the Old Testament. In fact, she probably was, is referring to, most people believe, is referring back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where Abraham is told by God that I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and from you I will be a blessing to all peoples, all nations. That term blessed is used many times in that, phrase, in that, in that verse. And here are, uh, we begin to realize that Mary sees this blessing. From this time forward, all generations, she's talking about generational blessing. Not on her, but on what God has done by sending his son through her. There's nothing in this statement by Mary that would make us uh, think that she wants to be exalted or that she should be exalted. In fact, many religions 
around the world have led countless astray. And if Mary was here today, she would rebuke them for making her some kind of idolatry of worship. Second thought, a God and Savior that reveals his glory to those who worship him. Look at verses 49 and 50. The mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation those towards those who fear him. After Mary's beautiful expression with a humble gratitude towards God, her Savior, she now turns her prayer, her prayer and her song towards the greatness of God. You'll notice that she picks out three attributes of God here. His power or might, you'll see that in the text. His holiness and his mercy. These are themes that she has grabbed onto from the Old Testament. And notice that she sees God's power directly in her own life, even though she's a nobody. The mighty one has done great things. And again, the emphasis of the text is on the mighty one. It's, it's on the one who has the power to do this, these things that I result from. And again, that bondservant perspective helps you understand this. She sees God as powerful and in his power, he does not neglect her, but looks down on her and blesses her. God in his power does these things. The Almighty One's greatness is realized in all bondservants, in all of us who say, Lord, I belong to you now. You've saved me through the work of Jesus Christ. I belong to you. See, that's worship. That's where worship comes from. And we see his greatness from, from our salvation to our daily lives, right? We see a great God who sustains us. We're speaking with somebody this week and talking about the brevity of life. And this person quoted to me out of Psalms 139 that God had ordained their days before one of them had come. That's, that's the power of God. To know the days and the breath of all people, let alone his children who he has an intimate relationship with. But we don't just see just the worship of God based. Uh, from Mary just solely on his power, his greatness. Notice she is captured by his holiness. Notice the end of verse 49. Holy is his name, his person, his character. She's captured by it. She sees him in his presence, his person, absent from evil. He's pure and perfect in his whole person, his mind, in his character, his behavior. She's speaking of the absolute sinlessness of God. And she comes to worship that. The holiness of God was a major theme of the Old Testament. Mary would have known this. She's an Old Testament student. That's what she has. That's what she's studied. And particularly that the holy God would, would entrust her. I think she's probably overwhelmed with this. This holy God would entrust her with his holy son. Staggering. And this holy son is now within her growing uh, tissue is forming. He, she, he, this baby carries her DNA, but not her sin nature. God has placed between her sin nature and the child, his spirit that guards the child from having any sin passed on to him so he could be impeccable. But yet this child's growing. This is the holy God. His son is now in her womb. It is amazing. Doubtlessly, she thought of Old Testament passages as we do when we think about the holiness of God. 
Psalm 97, 12, be glad in the Lord, you righteous one, and give thanks to his holy name. I think this is a passage that must have came to mind. Look what it says, how she expresses it. And holy is his name. It's, it's, it's almost word for word out of the Old Testament. She sees his character as absolutely flawless and perfect. Psalms 103, verse 3, excuse me, 105, verse 3, glory in his holy name is perfect character. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. This is Mary. Doubtlessly, she knew Isaiah 6 as well, a passage that we're very familiar with. But as I went back to think about this great statement where the angels cry out, holy, 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 notice it starts in verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah. It's death. Well, that would be Joseph's great-grandfather 16 times over. I think I'm close on that. And so that comes back to this. And, and there Isaiah says, I saw the Lord on his throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled in the temple. Mary's thinking about these things, this great holy God who has now placed his son in, his, in her womb. Seraphim stood above, each with six wings, and two they covered their face, and two they covered their feet, and two they flew. One called out to another, saying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Now listen to this. And then Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I think Mary can on this. She knows who she is, just like Isaiah knows. We don't deserve to be in your presence. How can this be? I'm ruined. The idea of the Hebrews, I'm a dead man. In your presence. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I imagine Mary connected with the words of the prophet Isaiah. She wrote this and the Spirit inspired her. One more great attribute that flows from the perfect holiness of God is mercy. Mary is very fond of the mercy of God. Notice in verse 50. And his Mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. Mercy is a common term brought up by the Hebrews. It was Moses who went up on the mount. He had broken the, uh, the first Ten Commandments in response to the wickedness of the nation. He had gone up. He was suffering. He, he was frustrated. He says, God, i got to see you. And God sets him in the cleft of the rock and passes by. And these are the words that are spoken. Then the Lord passed by, uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. Some translations use mercy there. That word can be that. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kessed. Loving kindness, mercy is the word there. And truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, generation to generation, who forgives iniquity and transgressions of sin. Mary would have been understanding of this passage. That was the history of the nation of Israel. They had been brought out from slavery. There God met with them on Mount Sinai, and there he promised mercy for generations to generations. And this flows out of her in this text coming right out of the Old Testament. I think she's also quoting Psalms 103, verse 7. Listen, she knew her Bible. I think it's a mark of a godly woman. They know their Bibles. It's a mark of a godly man. You know your Bible. 
Psalms 103, verse 17, here's what the Bible says here. But the loving kindness, keset, mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Generation to generation is the idea there. On those who fear him in his righteousness to children's children. She knew the promises of God's mercy and it comes out of her in a very unique situation. Most likely her family is not accepting her. She's, she's, got, a, she's got a cousin and an older relative, Elizabeth, who she goes to. And this is the expressions that come out of her in such difficult times. She was a worshiper. I think Mary knew the character of God. She worshiped him. I was tracking down that word mercy in just several different places and I was reminded of one of my favorite scenes in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is making his way uh, towards Jerusalem. Uh, and along the road, there's two blind men. You remember these guys. You remember what they say? Have mercy on us, son of David. See, that's, what, that's where this comes from. This is why she calls, her, calls God her God and Savior. She knows that the son of David is going to bring mercy. The nation knew that. And yet, in the end, they rejected the son of David, Jesus Christ. But notice finally there in verse 50 that mercy is only for those who fear him. Isn't that interesting, the way that says that? And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. This is reverential awe of God. This is worship. Those who are in awe of his power and his holiness, they're the ones that are granted mercy. It's for those who fear him. Now, certainly God is merciful to the world. Every day the sun comes up out of the east and sets in the west. He sends rain on the good and the evil. God is merciful. But he is uniquely merciful. E listen to this. Eternally merciful to those who fear him. That's astounding. And that was Mary. Third thought this morning. A God and Savior who will reverse the curse and judge the living and the dead. Look at verses 51 through 53. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers of their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Well, in these verses, Mary praises the power of God, his arm. But I think she's doing it in a prophetic way here. He talks about his power. That arm is, is the arm of God. It is uh, a way of expressing that God holds all things and controls all things. That's why Jesus sits at the right arm, the right hand of God. Here, I think she is telling of a coming reversal of the human values that dominate the world and the pride and the rulers of today even. And I think she's looking forward to the worship that will come with the Messiah when he takes his reign. In fact, through the Messiah whom she's carrying, he will overthrow such people that she lists here. Those who exalt themselves, those who are filled with pride in verse 51, those rulers and their thrones who have exalted themselves even over God. Those are the ones that she is speaking of. 
Some think Mary is speaking of past tense here because there's an aorist tense used there, but aorist just isn't just in the past. It may have an understanding of an event, but goes forward, and I think she's actually looking forward. Now, certainly the mind would come that people like Nebuchadnezzar, right, who made himself great and stood on the walls of, of Babylon and said, look how great I am. Certainly that is true. But there's kingdom language here. There's kingdom language here. And, and in that kingdom, Christ will, will, he will take and change everything. Where the proud have had their way, where the rulers have, have dominated, he will come and he will reverse that. I, I, I marveled when I thought about this, when, particularly when we think about Christ will make the last first and the first last and that great statement of equality that Lord uses several times. Inequality is something that man can never attain. They're trying, aren't they? They try so hard to make everybody equal, but the harder they try, they exalt another group over another group. They can't do it. But there's one coming, and this is what Mary's saying, there's one coming that can, can make the last first and the first last who can bring equality. And true equality comes when that King of kings and Lord of lords is reigning and ruling. In the ancient world, in Mary's day particularly, it would have been just common thinking. It would have been accepted that the rich are cared for well. They have people at their table, even beggars under it. That's just the way it was. And, the, and those who were poor, they would be expected to be hungry and suffer. And, and, and when we think about that as Christians, we, we strive to do our best within our circles, right? To help out those that have needs. We, we do our best to try to do that, but we can't stamp out the effects of the fall, can we? I remember one of my first major mission trips that I went over to speak at was in India. As I got off the plane and began to make my way through the streets of Mumbai, um, old Bombay, it was overwhelming at the millions of, of those in abject poverty. I'd never seen anything like that. Never seen the depths of poverty around the world. And now since then I've traveled many, many places and everywhere we go, poverty just rules and reigns. And though man keeps saying they're going to stamp it out and they're going to change all that, they never do. One ruler replaces another ruler and he takes that power and authority to himself. But Mary is singing of something better, isn't he? Mary's singing of a savior who's not bound by sinful people. Mary sings of a Savior that can do what humanity can't. He straightens out what's broken. He shines light into darkness. He teaches truth in a world of lies. He, he restores what sin has destroyed and he gives life to where there was death. This is what she's singing about here. This is what her prayer is filled with, with a God and Savior that can do what man cannot do. It made me go back and read... Revelations 21, when our Lord comes and sets his kingdom up on the new earth, there we realize that it says he'll dwell with us. He'll be our God and we will be his people. He'll wipe away tears. There'll no longer be death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. All that will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. The faithful and true is there. But then it says the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral perfect. This is all a list of people who haven't had their sins forgiven. And everybody who doesn't have their sin forgiven falls into this, right? Idolaters and liars and so forth. They'll have no part of him. They are, have a judgment, a second death in the lake of fire. See, I think what Mary 
is doing is understanding from the Old Testament that God promised a kingdom that would reverse the curse and a, and a judge who could judge the living and the dead. And she praises God that she has the privilege of carrying this one in the womb who can take and reverse all of what man has done. So through Mary's prayer, we see a glimpse of the Messiah's future when you see these verses here. And how he'll reign. I think her song, his prophecy of a greater kingdom to come. Which will have no end. And a savior of the redeemed. Last thought. Number four. A covenant ratified through the mercy of our God and savior. Look at verses 54 through the end there. He has given help to Israel, his servant. In remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Well, I think Mary's still speaking prophetically here. Certainly she believes in the promises of the Old Testament. That there was a Messiah coming who would save his people from his sins. But notice she makes this statement in verse 54. In remembrance. In remembrance. He'll give help to Israel. This was a promise. It's a statement that's highlighted by a, a nation that, that fell away from God. This nation is not deserving of God, just like, like us are not deserving of God. This nation God did everything for. He, he brought them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, split seas, rained bread out of heaven, brought water from rocks. It's amazing what God did. Wiped their enemies out. Gave them homes they did not build. Vineyards they did not plant. Did all that for and yet they rejected. But Mary still sees a very merciful God, doesn't she? She knows that God is a God who keeps his promises. He promised to the fathers. Notice in verse 55, the fathers. And that would include Abraham and many more. It'd go all the way back to Abraham. There was going to be I mean, Adam. There'd be one who would crush the head of the serpent. Certainly we read of the promises to Abraham. There's one going to come from you, a seed from you, that'll be a blessing to all nations. But promises were made to jo uh, Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon and by the mouth of the, promise, the prophets. These were all promises that Mary understood that God was going to fill, fill, fulfill through Jesus Christ, the one she carried. I believe Mary is uh, not speaking solely of a coming mercy there, but a continual mercy. And I love that. Just, I, I love to work with the language a little bit and try to see the verbs that God led them to choose. Because here she's looking back and saying, God has always been merciful. And he will always be merciful. And so there's this flow of God's mercy as she relates and reminds herself of the good things God has done. I wondered if Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 came to mind. The Lord's loving kindness, keset mercy, indeed never ceases. I wonder if that came to mind as she rehearses here. He has given help to Israel's servants in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to the fathers, to Abraham and his descendants. She's here recounting the mercies of God that didn't just end with the forefathers. But she sees that flow of mercy. Verse 56 is where Luke adds his thoughts. And I think Luke tells us that Mary's visit lasted about three months. He tells us here in this verse. What a three months that must have been. I thought about Mary. 
Or why isn't she with her mom? First three months of your pregnancy, your first pregnancy? She spends some of those most important months, months where often ladies are sick and things are changing. Their body is going through a change with, with a pregnancy and yet she's with Elizabeth. And so she seems to be here in some of the most precious times and, and yet she also seems to leave before the birth of John the Baptist. This is the next passage that John is born and it seems Mary has returned home. The Bible never tells us about Mary and Joseph's wedding ceremony. That would have been huge in the Hebrew world. That ceremony was celebrated from anywhere from three to seven days of gathering of family and friends and thanking God for, for the marriage. None of that is mentioned. Nothing about the family gathering. It's possible that the only one who truly understood what Mary was going through was Elizabeth. I, I thought about this little phrase that she returned home. There's only a handful of people, the Lord and a handful of people that know what that looked like. We're not told. The scriptures don't tell us. And the next thing you know is we see in chapter 2 the birth of the Savior and they are alone. We're going to look at that next week on Christmas morning. But what we do know here, as we study the, the song or the prayer of Mary, is there is a great promise of salvation. There's mercy in a God who is both God and Savior. And that mercy, think about this, is most clearly expressed in the new covenant. That's what Jesus does. He fulfills the old covenant. Only he could keep it. And he ushers in a new covenant and there's mercy shown in such amazing ways. The new covenant would, would have been ratified by his death and burial and resurrection. That would, have, that would have stamped the approval of this new covenant that we receive. And that one who can do that is in Mary's womb. And only through that finished work of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior, can, can the sins of the redeemed be forgiven. It's an amazing statement. And that is what we see in Mary's song and prayer. That's the hope that's in Mary's womb as we think about this blessed prayer and song. That's the hope that we cling to by faith alone, that he is our God, creator, sustainer, controller of all things, but he is our savior, the one who gives mercy to us freely. That's what Christmas is about. And we praise the Lord for it. Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity just to spend time in a, in a song, Lord, a prayer that was written so long ago. But yet your spirit inspired it in Mary, caused her to, to delight in the things of the Lord, to exalt her God and Savior, to, to rejoice, to, uh, to be overwhelmed with joy that God had favored her and allowed her a sinner who needed her own son to save her, but she would rejoice at that. And Lord, she, she was mindful of your word. She knew the Bible. She knew the Old Testament prophecies and statements of, of mercy and, and power and holiness of God. She understood those. And when the time came for her to express that, this flowed out of her. 
Lord, I pray as many, many believers here in this room, when God gives us an opportunity to express what is in our souls, that we would express both the power of God, His absolute holiness, but we would also proclaim His mercy. The world needs to hear this, Lord. They're lost and, and headed to a judgment of eternal ramifications that are beyond, beyond what we fully understand. And so, Lord, in this Christmas season, may we be like Mary who exalts the God and Savior of the universe, the one who gives mercy, the one who can change the eternal destiny of the soul. Lord, thank you for her, Lord. Thank you that we don't worship her. <laughs> thank you that she had a Savior within her womb that she worshiped. And Lord, one day we look forward to gathering with the saints of old and the saints of all time to sing like Mary, to exalt our God and Savior together, Lord. But may we do that even now as we sing, as we praise Him, and during this Christmas season as we honor Him in His incarnation. King of kings, Lord of lords in the manger, we praise you for this in Jesus' name.